You're listening to episode 79 of the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we talk about part one of how to not lose yourself in a relationship. Welcome to the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we explore how to use the science of psychology, Eastern spiritual practices like mindfulness and compassion, and the game-changing work of self-coaching so you can free your mind and free your life. I'm your host, Anna Verzoni. Hey, hey, Rebels. How is it being a wild and wacky human these days? <laughs> I just got back from Hawaii yesterday, and this morning in Alaska, it was freaking eight degrees, <laughs> which actually is like more commonly the type of winters we had when I first moved here. But I forgot I had to do things like warm up my car in advance to melt the ice off the windshield and all that. But I still managed to get my kiddo to school on time, though, which was good. So anyway, we had the most amazing time on the Adventure Mastermind, y'all. We had our first retreat because we have two of them. We had the first one on the big island. And I really missed doing these retreats, I realized, because I canceled it in 2020 due to COVID. But now we are back. And we went night snorkeling with manta rays, which was, I have to say, truly spiritual. It felt like we were in outer space floating amongst stars. And we also mountain biked along volcanic fissures and saw the active eruption of Kilauea. We went stargazing on Mauna Kea, where like the strongest telescopes in the world are due to its clarity up there. We hiked to waterfalls, watched lots of sunsets on the beach, and laughed until our cheeks felt like they were going to fall off. And we cried. We did cry. And it felt really, really good to cry in a safe space with all these amazing women. And we did a lot of other things I'll just leave out today. But I am so absolutely thrilled that I am back doing retreats again. So I hope you can come join me in the future one. The next one, our registration opens up in January for the spring one. Okay. So keep an eye out for that. You can get on the wait list at adventuremastermind.com. But anyway, it was awesome. And I can't even wait for our second one. So one of the topics that came up was relationships. And that makes sense since relationships are one of the most common things people come to coaching about, right? Specifically, I often hear people asking how we can prevent losing ourselves in a relationship, right? You know, before the relationship, we're hiking on weekends with girlfriends. We chat for hours with our bestie. We have dinner parties. We knit. We go to yoga. Then in a relationship, we skip yoga because our partner just got home and we really miss them. Or we cancel hiking with our friends because our partner says they really want to hang out with us at home. Or we don't take the workshop or go on the retreat because we think our partner will miss us. We forget to do what we want to do just because it'll make our partner a little bit uncomfortable. Yet we're willing ourselves to be uncomfortable and to disregard our priorities so that they don't have to be uncomfortable or because we're insecure. Now, as you might know, I received my postdoctorate in psychiatric mental health nursing from Johns Hopkins University. And while in that program, we revisited attachment theory, which I hadn't really thought about since my undergraduate psychology studies at UCSC. And it reminded me of how much our attachment 
challenges show up in our adult relationships. And I also read a book called Anxious in Love that was really influential for some of the things I'm going to talk about in this series. So what I mean by series is this is going to be a two-part series. And this week, I'm going to lay some foundational concepts and talk about how our attachment styles can relate to the anxiety we feel in relationships, which then lead us to losing ourselves when we are in them. And in part two, we'll dive even deeper in the application of this theory to real life. But you've got to understand the why first so that you're more willing to do things differently because sometimes you'll want to back out. Now, I'm not some kind of relationship guru when it comes to this topic, right? Because this used to happen to me a lot and still does at times, albeit a lot less frequently and with much less intensity. So for for all of y'all, how often does your stomach drop when you see an email come in? Like me, when I see an email come in, I often have a sort of mini panic that it's bad news or that someone is upset with me because I've received bad news with email or like social media messages before, you know, about being cheated on, my mother dying. Yep, that happened. No bueno. And, you know, just really like scary, intense things happening just from an email or a message, right? Or how often do you check your phone obsessively to see if so-and-so has texted you yet? Or maybe you avoid hard conversations because you're afraid of upsetting someone or you tolerate bullshit and avoid voicing your preferences, right? Now, let me preface all this with saying nothing is wrong with you. You are not broken. You're not weak or insecure or too empathic or conflict avoidant or too sensitive or not good enough. We often just think we're not confident enough too, right? But what's really happening is that our brain is doing exactly what it was meant to do, caring what other people think about us. And this is baseline biology and part of evolution, where if we were ostracized from our tribe, that was life-threatening because we had no protection against the apex predators or help to acquire resources like food and water and shelter. However, now we're not under the same threats anymore, yet we go beyond this baseline anxiety and concern. And a big part of this is because of patriarchy, which privileges men and is a social system that tells women that they are not good enough. We hear it from our family, movies, advertisements, and our broader culture. We're taught that men are a certain way and women are a certain way. And we're told women should marry and be nice and not seem too smart to their partner. I know I was told that. Like, oh, I want you to be smart. Your intelligence is what will get you out of the hood. But don't let your boyfriends know how smart you are because that'll intimidate them, right? (laughs) We're also told that we should make men and other people feel good about themselves, to be patient, to be kind, no matter how you're feeling, to put everyone else first. And we're also taught to evaluate our own self-worth and lovability based on what other people think of us. And anxiety in relationships is often rooted and worrying about what the other person thinks of us. And I'm just going to say that again. Anxiety in relationships is often rooted in worrying about what the other person thinks of us, right? So let's review the basics of attachment theory here because it plays a big role in this, especially when it's coupled with how we are socialized in a patriarchal society. So 
Attachment theory is one that in childhood, we develop attachment styles that impact our relationship with our caregivers. So a basic example is that um, an infant will cry when the caregiver leaves and calm down when they come back. And it also is impacted by how our requests for help, our cries are responded to or not responded to. And the theory is that our experience as a child and how reliable our caregivers are at meeting our needs and potentially some of just whatever wiring we're all kind of born with and in the type of psychology that um, I also appreciate, like depth psychology, the core wound we were sort of born to experience, like we're kind of set up to experience a certain core wound, that all impacts our attachment style. And from an evolutionary perspective, this developed to help our caregivers to stay with us and continue to care for us. And in attachment theory, it's said that these same patterns influence and are acted out in our relationships as adults, especially our relationships with intimate partners. But it can be seen in other types of relationships as well. Now, your attachment style as an infant isn't always exactly how your attachment style as an adult will be, but they're often connected. And your relationships as an adult can also impact your attachment style, especially if you're in a long-term relationship that activates different patterns, right? Like long-term abusive or codependent relationships. And you know, three basic attachment styles, and this is somewhat simplified, are secure attachment, anxious attachment, and avoidant attachment. And some theories include the subtype anxious avoidant, but we're going to kind of stick to the anxious attachment here. Now, people with secure attachment styles, and they do exist, my friends, it may seem rare, but they do exist. It's often like you can vibe that in them, right? And you think, wow, you must have had really great parents. <laughs> and, you know, people with secure attachment styles are comfortable with intimacy and they can also maintain independence. So they can do that while also being comfortable with some degree of interdependence. They're not codependent and they're not isolated. They're not anxious or avoidant. So they're basically really comfortable in relationships and with intimacy. Lucky, right? Y'all, we are going to be happy for them, okay? Y'all with secure attachment styles, we are so happy for you. <laughs> we we need some of y'all so that like you can be our partners. <laughs> anyway, so people who have anxious attachment styles tend to be preoccupied with fears of being abandoned or rejected. Mm, raising my hand over here, right? And worry a lot about their partner, like changing their mind about them, losing interest, or their partner leaving them. And this often manifests in relationships as jealousy and anxiety. And we tend to respond to these really uncomfortable feelings by trying to reestablish connection, like a feeling of closeness and intimacy. I remember in one relationship, if my partner came home exhausted after work and didn't talk much, didn't want to have sex, like just wanted to go to sleep, and it actually didn't happen that often. But when it did, I remember thinking, oh no, something happened. They don't love me anymore. They don't want me anymore. And then I'd feel so anxious until we had sex again, because when we had sex, I felt connected and intimate. And then my anxiety would go away. But until then, until I felt connected and intimate, I'd often engage in what's called 
protest behaviors. Like some examples of this would be calling or texting your partner excessively, right? Or acting out in the relationship or trying to manipulate them into doing reassuring things, saying reassuring things. Sound familiar? Totally, right? Now, those with avoidant attachment styles also experience a kind of emotional distress in relationships, but instead of worrying about losing intimacy, they worry about losing autonomy and independence. Any hands going up out there? Maybe if you're not one, dated anyone like that, with someone like that, they see relationships as being threats to their independence. So they tend to react to intimacy or even hints of intimacy by wanting to create more space and distance. So the protest behavior for them can look like withdrawing, ignoring, not taking calls or ghosting, right? That kind of stuff. And lots of us can actually have both of these tendencies. And that might be the the subtype, like the anxious avoidant tendency, right? So In this case, it would not necessarily be that someone starts out feeling shut down and distant, but they start to feel anxious, and the way that they deal with that is to create distance, where someone with a purely anxious attachment wants to fix it by getting closer. Now, here's where we can really create our own kind of mindfuck, and Carol Lowenthal pointed this out to me, which I think is really fascinating. It's common for an anxiously attached person and an avoidantly attached person to end up in a relationship together. Isn't that crazy? They're like opposites. (laughs) So as you can imagine, this kind of creates a power dynamic that's really a lot of like push-pull, right? And this was super common in a couple of relationships in my life. And I can see it so clearly now. Like I picked these avoidant types. And more on why in part two of this series, but I want you to know this as we talk about attachment. And what happens here is the anxious partner senses the avoidance and responds to it with attempts to grasp at intimacy, to feel it again, right? Like maybe they send a bunch of texts saying, I love you, and expecting their partner to say, I love you back, or asking, is everything okay? Or can we talk? Which of course the avoidant partner is like red flag and wants to run like hell right? And feels even more avoidant. They withdraw further, right? And oh my gosh, all of like just saying that reminds me of when I was in a relationship like that. And let me tell you, it was exhausting. So if you experience a lot of anxiety in intimate relationships, especially early on, and you worry a lot about the other person rejecting you or cheating on you or being interested in other people, changing their mind, then maybe you're more like, anxiously attached, right? And if you find intimacy and closeness uncomfortable, right? Or maybe you have anxiety that only improves with separation and independence, then maybe that's more of an avoidantly attached pattern. Now, I'm talking about all this not so you can diagnose yourself and be like, oh, see, I'm broken, but rather so that you can see how our brains do certain things based on these attachment styles and that you can have two very similar situations. In fact, identical situations. And based on attachment style, we experience them differently and it leads to us doing different things and showing up in the relationship in different ways. Like someone could text you, I love you. And if you have a secure attachment style, you might think, oh, that is so sweet. And if you had an anxious style, you might think, huh, that's weird. They hardly ever say that. Maybe they're feeling guilty about something. 
And if you had an avoidance style, you might think, damn, this person is so needy, right? You see? And this is because based on our attachment styles, we have experiences in the world, in our relationships that are filtered through these attachment styles. And we have certain thoughts about what happened based on these styles. Now, you may have noticed that like many of the books discussed, there's a tendency for people who've been socialized as women to be anxiously attached and those socialized as men to be avoidantly attached. And it's sort of assumed that that's normal. But remember what I was discussing earlier about political, cultural, and societal norms. In most of these contexts, people socialized as women or as men are taught different things about how to think about intimacy or sexuality, about romance, especially in heteronormative societies. So, for example, people socialized as women are told that marrying a man is the most important thing in the world. And it's implied because, like, it's that is what makes us valuable and worthy and safe. That's what we're told, right? And as a result, we're taught to care a lot about what men think of us. And with relationship anxiety, whether heterosexual or identifying as LGBTQIA, if someone is socialized as a woman, they are taught to care a lot about what their partners think of them and how men in general think of them, even if they're not a part of our intimate lives. Years ago, I remember when I was in my mindfulness meditation teacher training program, with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock, and I was teaching a self-compassion class, and I had to get feedback forms from participants. And the group was mostly women with a couple of men, and pretty much everyone loved it. And I got really helpful, constructive feedback as well, and I took it in without drama. But one man said something like, I hate talking in groups, so you totally lost me when we went into breakout rooms. Pretty benign, right? He's basically like, I don't like talking in front of people, and I didn't like the breakout rooms. (laughs) Anyway, and for some reason, my brain started spinning on this, and I was feeling anxious about it, like, oh, this white guy didn't like it, and I lost him. And wow, I mean, it felt like such a big deal and caused some anxiety, and I was putting way too much weight on it. And to be fair, he didn't even say it in an aggressive or demeaning way, like in hindsight. He was just saying he didn't like speaking in groups. And I did some reflection and some thought work and could see it was my socialization. You know, thought work shows us our brain, right? So I could see that if a woman had said that, I'd have thought, oh, thank you for the feedback. And I'm like, okay, I'll take it if it's useful, leave it if it's not kind of way and keep it in mind for the future. Like maybe give folks who might be uncomfortable in front of groups more prompts or some guidance or something, right? Anyway. So I got so curious about why I was having such a disproportionate reaction. And after looking at my thoughts, I could see it was because I was socialized that this person's opinion mattered more, that a white man's opinion mattered more than anyone else's. So the socialization runs deep. Anyway, in relationships, success for people socialized as women is kind of defined as being being validated by getting a man to commit to you, right? and saving you from being a spinster. And that message is still out there, and we are still absorbing it. And knowing this, doesn't it make sense that if we're taught that the most important thing about us is our appearance and our attractiveness as a mate, and if we're taught that if we aren't chosen by a mate for a romantic relationship, then we're not as good 
as women who are and that it means there's something wrong with us. Like, doesn't it make sense that we're super anxious when it comes to relationships? Yeah. I mean, that alone will mindfuck you, but add to that dysfunctional parenting dynamics and experiences where we had caring withheld from us, where we weren't cared for or attended to, where a parent may have been narcissistic and focused only on their experience and never on yours. They didn't soothe you or care for you tenderly, invalidated your feelings, didn't respond to your cries, abused you physically or emotionally, or maybe they were an addict. That will heighten this anxiety as well, right? Not to mention long-term toxic relationships we experience that then bring up these patterns. So it makes perfect sense. Your brain is doing exactly what it should do given this socialization and breadth of experiences. It's protecting you from what you were told might happen and what we have evolved to watch out for, a very dangerous world without a partner. This doesn't even include how men are taught that women are constantly trying to trap them and that women all want to be in relationships with them and that they shouldn't want to be in a marriage or long-term relationship. So the avoidance makes sense too, right? And again, there is a general gender difference in attachment styles in the research. And I think when we look at how people are socialized, not necessarily how they identify, it makes sense why. The empowering aspect of all this is while how we were parented and cared for is in the past, this socialization is actively still going on in our lives, and we can start to notice that and change our thoughts about our experiences knowing this. So knowing all this helps us to avoid losing ourselves in relationships because we can see that the thoughts that contribute to our anxiety, like I'm not worthy if I'm not in a relationship or I'm not safe unless I'm in a relationship, right? Like I remember when I got divorced, my mom was so worried I'd like die and become homeless or something, or I guess first I'd become homeless and then die. (laughs) And I was like constantly having to reassure I was going to be just fine. Like anyway, we have all these anxiety producing thoughts and we can realize that while we may think all these scary things about what would happen if this person doesn't want to be with us, it doesn't mean those thoughts are true. That rather it's how we've been socialized what to think about being without a partner. And that leads to massive anxiety. So when this anxiety arises, instead of panicking and using some of the protest behaviors that I mentioned earlier, like constantly texting and grasping for intimacy, we can say, oh, it makes sense that I have all this anxiety because I've been taught that without a partner, I'm not safe or whole or worthy or lovable. But that is not true. I just have an attachment style that filters life a certain way and causes me to think in a certain way about it. Like I remember I would have anxiety when I was first dating my husband and he didn't text me back soon enough for something, right? Or at least soon enough in my mind. Or if he said something that I perceived as critical or insensitive and I'd end up picking fights if I reacted to my thoughts about that, right? I'd have thoughts like, oh, he doesn't love me anymore. Or now he's seeing all these flaws in me and watch now he's going to leave. And I'd act out and respond with fear when I felt our intimacy or our stability in the relationship was threatened. But then I started saying, hmm, hey, Anna, just pause. What if I did things differently and gave him the benefit of the doubt? What if I didn't say anything right away and just let my feelings be? 
and get curious. And I did this as a kind of experiment. Like I'd want to say something and it was almost painful to keep it in, but I was like, girl, just be curious. And inevitably, what I noticed was he'd do or say something that would totally disprove my anxious thoughts about it. And it was really cool to see how, oh, that's where I'd have picked a fight or lashed out, but I didn't. I could really see that it was my thoughts about what he did and not evidence at all for how he actually felt about me. So when we have anxious feelings, we often want to do anything to help them go away, right? And we can get kind of batshit crazy about the things we do too. And when we have thoughts like they might leave me or they might not love me anymore, we often give up our preferences for things or even compromise our values, right? We even can do this when we notice they're a little uncomfortable, right? It's like, oh, that can't happen because that's what we're socialized to prevent, right? So we'll sacrifice things that are important to us, to our own health. And we do things we don't want to do. We go along with things we don't enjoy. We tolerate bullshit more often because our brains make up all sorts of reasons why we should do that in order to stay safe and worthy and loved. It feels scary not to. But now you know that when those thoughts and feelings arise, it doesn't mean they are true. And you should never, ever have to sacrifice your joy and purpose and your own precious life for another. It may feel like everything's going to fall apart if you don't. And that makes sense because we've been socialized to believe that. And depending on our upbringing, we may be even more anxious about that. But you are already 100% worthy. 100% lovable as you are right now, as you have been from the moment you existed and all the ways you've changed since then. Now, this doesn't mean we don't ever sacrifice for others, but the motivation for the sacrifice when it's driven in a healthy way is a joy from doing it, not a fear of what the other person will think or a fear of making them uncomfortable or disappointing them or of them leaving us. Can you see the difference? One is driven by love and feels good, and the other is driven by fear and feels anxious and graspy and exhausting. We can start with self-compassion because often what we'll do is have all kinds of shame and guilt about how we've compromised our own beliefs and preferences and life goals for a partner, and we beat ourselves up about it. I'll link to the self-compassion episode in the show notes. You can learn some simple practices for this as well. But I want to invite you to start with understanding that it makes total sense that your brain goes there and creates these thoughts that you subsequently feel really anxious about. There's nothing wrong with your brain. It's doing what it should do given what it's been exposed to and given our evolutionary tendencies. And remember that these concepts also apply to friendships and other relationships right? We might worry a lot that our friends are going to drop us or ghost us, that they don't love us anymore either and might abandon us. We can be really insecure and jealous in other relationships too, like sibling relationships, for example. But in terms of attachment theory, our intimate romantic relationships have a particular intensity of triggers that bring this up. So after the self-compassion We then do the work to identify the thought patterns and mental habits that we have based on our attachment style. And yeah, it's not the most pleasurable experience to start to look at this, but remember, that's true with any pivotal growth points in our lives. 
The good news is that this also means it's not true that you're not enough, not lovable, not worthy. It doesn't mean that all the good ones have been snagged and that dating is pointless. If we have anxiety in relationships, it just means that we need to learn some skills, which are totally learnable so we can function in a healthier way. And some skills we discussed today are mindfulness of emotions, mindfulness of thoughts, right? Just what I've been talking about, right? It helps us notice that this is even going on and awareness precedes change. We start to notice our anxious thoughts, the filter through which we experience the world and the emotions that arise as a result. We also discussed how a patriarchal society predisposes us to have certain thoughts and to filter relationship experiences in a context of men being more worthy and the value of women being based on what other people think of them. So we can practice thought work like I've taught in this podcast, where we can see how our thoughts impact our feelings and subsequently our actions so that we can choose thoughts that better serve us and that more accurately represent reality and not just our attachment style. And I'll link to the episode on self-coaching in the resources as well, so you can check that out. Now, another piece of good news in all this is that as we address this in ourselves, we then attract partners to us who also have healthier attachment styles and skills, right? When we don't address this, we attract partners who perpetuate the harmful cycle. I know this is easier said than done, but if you want support with this, I want to encourage you to come join Freedom School and we'll get to work on this, right? We even have a whole month during Freedom School where we focus on relationships. And this month we're focusing on mastering emotional wellness, which is totally applicable to this. And Oh my gosh, I do a lot of coaching on these topics on the live calls in there. And there are a lot of students in Freedom School working through this too. So you're definitely not alone. So if you're looking at all these resources and feeling overwhelmed, come on over, go to joinfreedomschool.com. Come join the squad. It's like 30-day money-back guarantee. No risk. Just go for it. Check it out, okay? Now, in the meantime, I would love for you to explore what kind of attachment style you think you have. If you have a secure attachment style, lucky you, please give your sisters some big hugs and patiently be with them and hold them with compassion. And if you're like me with a more anxious attachment style, start to notice where this jumps into your experience and interpretation of your relationships or with dating or in friendships and family encounters. And you might think I'm going to say the next, get going with the thought work, but I want to invite you to first start with giving yourself some self-compassion. Say to yourself, it totally makes sense that this is how I'm thinking and feeling. You know, I could say, this is hard, Anna. It's hard to see the world this way. I'm so sorry. What do you need right now? And maybe that's to remind yourself that you're 100% worthy and 100% lovable as is, and you have always been. That's where we start, Rebels. As for the rest, I will talk to all of you Freedom Junkie Rebels next week where we're going to dive into part two of this work and I give you even more tools for how to not lose yourself in relationships, okay? All right. So notice, give yourself some self-compassion. We'll just start there, right? With the awareness and with the self-compassion. All right. Until next week. 
If you like what you heard, please spread the love and share it. And if you know you need some help with this and want to learn more about how to free your mind and free your life, go to rebelbuddhist.com and grab my free Rebel Buddhist Toolkit, where you'll receive a video training on cultivating resilience, access to the private Rebel Buddhist group where I do weekly live sessions on topics just like this, and a copy of the gorgeous Rebel Buddhist Manifesto, and more for free. That's rebelbuddhist.com.